Hello and welcome to Black Country Podcasting. My name's Lozikis. You're listening to Show 2, Series 2. On Black Country Podcasting, you'll hear original music, storytelling and poetry, plus interesting folks from in and around the Black Country region of the UK. As I explained in Show 1, the first few shows in Series 2 will consist of archive material taken from Series 1. Going to start today's show with some music. This is Cory Palmer.
sometimes do Don't you give up on me Smooth Operator, Cory Palmer, beautiful song. A mate of mine, Ralph Moore, introduced me to Cory. He brought her over to the studio and when she sat down and started playing, I couldn't believe it. Great stuff. I'll definitely play some more Cory Palmer on the show, but if you can't wait for that, pop along to YouTube. She's on there. Moving on. We've always been creative here in the black country and never more so than when we're talking about the manufacture of crystal glass. In fact, we're world famous for it. We still are. So a few years ago, I went down to Tudor Crystal and spoke to Barbara Beedman. She was the director at the time of Tudor Crystal Glass. What follows is a recording of that chat. Barbara Beedman. This is a new dial glassworks and it was built in 1788. Why was the glass making here? Well, we had all the right ingredients. When the Huguenots first came over here, there were plentiful supplies of wood and there was clay for making the pots. There was sand for the glass. As that disappeared, then afterwards there were, again, plentiful supplies of of coal and then coke. Um, And again, the clay for the pots, and as that was worked out, they started to bring it in from Yorkshire. Sand comes from all over the world now because there, there isn't the right sort of sand in this area. And we've used up the raw materials. You choose your sand for the type of glass you want to prepare. So if you need a low iron sand so that it hasn't got um, a green cast to it, you can get over the green cast anyway. Uh, In the past, the crystal makers always used to put what they call a decolorizer. So just as you get with soap powder, you'll get a blue soap powder so that it makes your washing shine white. Then with crystal, they'd put in a tiny speck of cobalt, again blue, and that would make the crystal shine and cover the green. Some glassworks use neodymium, which is slightly pink, but again, you're looking at the same, it's covering up the green. If you're making a glass for a scientific purpose, then you'll choose a sand that's going to give you the right result. So if you've got to have a low potassium glass, then you choose a sand that's got a low potassium content. And you have to find out where the sand is around the world. We currently buy sand in from, it comes in from Belgium, but it's actually sourced from California and it's a very fine high grade sand. Scotland has some very fine sands. They've just discovered some new sand in Tasmania. So a long way for it to come, but it gives you the right end result. We've got lots of recipe books. Some of the recipes we can't use anymore because in the past they'd have a bucket of this and a cup of that. So how big's a bucket and how big's a cup? But also in the past the ingredients were quite impure and some of the beautiful effects you got came from the impurities. Well today you can't reproduce that because you don't actually know what was in it. And even if you do an analysis from the glass you're not entirely sure because as it melts it gives off volatiles so you lose some elements of it although you can say yes we think it would have been that when you come to try it you still don't get quite the same effect when we're making glasses 
we know exactly what's got to go in. It's all weighed out. Each one has a sheet made out for it. If we're doing special glasses for, well, say for a cancer treatment machine, then we have a sample sent off to be analysed for the potassium content so that each melt is then analysed to make sure it stays within the set parameters. Twenty years ago, if you think back to the electric fires with the glass coal effect, I mean, that was going a bomb. And in fact, at that time, it probably saved the company. That trend and the furnaces were built especially to melt the coals and every customer had their own size and their own shade of colour and all the rest of it with the ambers and the reds and that's almost gone all together. We've had a little bit of a comeback where people have been asking for very bright shades of blue and sometimes a little bit of green but really and truly that has gone because other, other, other technologies have taken over from that. Fashion, certainly when artists are buying colours to roll their glass in, then depending on what, what Dulux are doing or what some changing rooms is doing, then you will get a fashion in vases. So people will come to us and ask us for specific colours. If we're making coloured rod, we have one customer that makes lots and lots of flowers. And depending on where his market will be, will depend on the sort of flowers they buy. So then, so we've just done a new pink, which is called elephant pink, because he's making elephants. So uh, yes, so there are fashion trends. Yeah, the Indian High Commission are very fond of crystal, and they like the crystal to grace the table. And in fact, I would imagine every embassy in the world has got. Tudor crystal in it and it's where you need an elegant table that you will see crystal. A glassmaker tends to take five years, well an apprentice glassmaker it's five years and then after that you've got someone who you can say is useful to the industry and they've got to have, it doesn't matter how much training they have, if they don't have the aptitude they'll never get it. They'll be an okay glassmaker but they'll never have that extra bit. In this factory, we've got three styles of glass making. We've got the crystal style, where you are aiming to get weight, so that you've got the weight in which the cutter can then cut and engrave. On the technical side, we are aiming for very thin wall, because that's, again, for technical purposes, so that's a different way of blowing wool together. And then we have the tubing makers, who are blowing in a different way yet again. And then we've got rod makers who don't actually blow it, but they have to be able to gather it. And then the same for pressing. You need to get a very small amount of glass. So, for example, if you're making a thimble and it's going to be pressed, you're looking at around about 10 grams of glass, and you want them to collect that every time. Because if you get 11 grams, then it flows around the outside and you've got a nasty edge. And because it's already very labour-intensive, you don't want that at all. So there are lots of different skills. When we were making photomultipliers for one big job, an experimental process in Chile, they only had 2,200 finished ones. 
So if you think that in order to set up a mechanised process, you've probably got to have a tank of glass with 24 tonnes of glass in it, you've got to have a robot gatherer, which costs half a million pounds, and then you've got to keep churning them out. Well, these things are really quite light. I mean, if they're, I don't know, four or five ounces, that's perhaps all they are, maybe a bit heavier than that. But that's an awful lot of glass that you would waste. So it isn't cost-effective to make it by machine because these are one-off things. When you think of some of the cancer treatment machines, there's only five companies in the world who make the machines. So they're only talking of small quantities. Some of the people don't actually recognise that you need some what are considered low-tech skills in order to generate high-tech equipment. We're the only company that makes coloured glass tubing in the UK. The only others who can compete on colours are Italian. So there's ourselves and the Italians, and that's more or less it. There's a bit of blue and green made in the Czech Republic, uh, and China obviously is starting to make some of their own. We are the only company in this country making coloured rod and chips and powders for other glass makers to use. We are now probably the only glass maker making some of the technical glass that we make in the UK. There are only two crystal companies in the UK making 30% full lead crystal. We're one. That's the, the quantity of lead in the recipe. We put 33% in and when it's melted it's 30% lead and that gives its weight and its refractive index. It's actually more difficult to, to use by the glass makers than 24% lead which is what the machine makers tend to use. We're the only working cone in the country. There aren't any more. It acts just like a big chimney. The top of ours was taken off in 1935 and the steelwork put in in 1936. So even the steelwork is quite unique, but it does act as a very big chimney, which makes the working environment much better. I mean, this factory was double the size it is now. Well, it had three nine-pot furnaces, it had six three-pot furnaces and it varies over the years and certainly as you look around the walls of the building you can see lots of bricked in places which is really a reflection of how they've tried to change to meet the changing marketplace. Where the raw materials used to come in, in what's called our cave, we've got one of the Millennium neon sculptures sighted in there and if you walk down the canal you'll see it reflected we're a family firm, we have lots of families who work here who can trace their grandparents, great-grandparents and further back and it continues even now. There were thousands involved, not just in glass making but all the ancillary pieces and when you think of Chances and, and all the other glass companies that were involved and all around here, there was such a lot going on. I mean, this company was always highly regarded because of the technical expertise that's been here. And when the oven-to-tableware type glasses were invented, then one type was invented here and another type in the large glass industry. And they were devised specifically for the different ways of melting. And some of the glasses are named after here, like Dial 43. They're called Dial because they were invented here. Some of the early Tudor there were some wonderful pieces made. Jack Lloyd, who is famous throughout the world for his copper wheel engraving, there are lots of his pieces about. We have one or two pieces here now. I mean, we've got one of the glass makers here 
Herbert Dreyer, who used to work with the Esart brothers, who were famous in paper paperweight worlds, and he worked for Monart. And we've produced vases here that are very similar in style to Monart, which was a 20s and 30s style glass. And because all the glass is made here and he has the skill and that with the other glass makers pull it all together and it actually gave us a new product line in colour, coloured crystal which is quite different. Barbara Beedman. Well I bet you didn't know much of that. Anyway, while I was there I had a chat with one of the lads that worked there. He'd worked in the glass industry all of his working life. An incredibly skilled man. This is Lindsay. I started in 1968 when I was uh, I was 15. We all just left school at 15, that's right. And uh, I worked at Webb Corbett, which is down the road, because it was took over by Royal Dalton. I'd done 15 years there. As a, as a young lad, I seemed to pick it up quite easy. I mean, plus, I was quite lucky, really, because when I, when I first started, there were a lot of old fellas there, and there was all boarders retiring at the same time. So it gave one or two of us, my age, the opportunity, if you wanted to push yourself. Well, I'd been there about two or three months, at the most, and I'm in pit gathering, which is the next job up from the kids' job. The pit gatherer gathers the two pieces of metal for the survey to make the stem and the foot. He gathers the stem and then he gathers the foot for the for the survey to, to shape, making shape. And he finishes the glass off. He blows for me. He blows the bowl. He would blow that and I would put just the bowl and then I'll finish it off. I'll put the stem and the base on and the foot. And then after that... I was, as I say, I was bit gathering for about eight or nine months. And uh, luckily enough, as I said, I picked it up quite quick. I went blowing. And uh, I was blowing until I was about 20. And then I went on doing the job as I, was, as, do, as I do now. As I say, I was very young, very young. A servitor, a wine servitor, a wine servitor. I actually think it's because they serve you. Everything's bought to you, they serve you, and you're the servitor. I've never really struggled. You know, if I don't go do it one, one time, I'll do it the next so it's just a job that's just always come natural to me. I mean, uh, my grandmother, her had five brothers. Four of them were glassmakers, and uh, the other was a glass cutter. They all worked at Stewart's. My brother was a glassmaker. My dad was a glass cutter. My sister was a glass cutter. My wife was a glass cutter. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. Crystal. That's where I met my wife at work. Yeah, it was in the blood, you know. That's right, uh, glass cutter, something like that. Like that, you'd got started with Webb and Corbett, then you'd got uh, Tudor. Got this, of course. Tudor was just next door, down the road. Stewart's and multitude as have gone, buried under the ground. They've, they found some actually, not so long back, just over the road there. Old glass firm, nobody even knows there. You know, the old furnaces underneath the ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, when, as I say, when I first started, there was a lot of old old chaps there. Some over retiring age have stopped on. You know, there's somebody who used to work like 70. But they were, they were fantastic old fellows, they were characters. They were marvellous old blokes. As I, I've, I've said it before, when I first started, I used to work with an old fellow called Albert Lowe. And they used to come on a morning like with a button-down collar, tie on, used to wear a tie. And there, off the collar and tie, I'd go on the way, they'd start work. Come at dinner time, they'd say, fetch me a bucket of nice clean cold water, and you'll get them a clean, some clean cold soap, wash the face in the bucket of water. Why they'd go up the pub and have a few pints. They were great characters, mate. Great characters. When I started Webcore, but they were probably the best in the world. You had a fella there called uh, Frank Costin. He could make anything. Absolutely anything. His arms, you see Popeye, I know it sounds silly. His arms was like that. And he was 68 then. Strong, fantastic, strong bloke. It's hard work. It is hard graft, but it's so much as you get used to and his water off looks back, actually. There you go. You want to know what the black country sounds like? Lindsay. Lindsay.
Right, what's next? Oh, I know, a bit of music. When I was working at the Savoy Centre in Netherton a few years ago, a young man walked in and he wanted to join the IT group that I was running. I said, yes, of course he could join the group, but he would have to enrol first. So I got some forms together. When I asked him where he was from, I was expecting him to say Sedgley or somewhere, he said, the Congo. <laughs> I was a bit taken back by that. I suppose that explained the French accent. He was living in Netherton, and it seems he'd come here to escape the troubles in his homeland. He'd come here with his family and some friends. Actually, there's quite a strong community from that part of Africa living in and around Birmingham. I didn't realise that. Anyway, to cut a long story a little bit shorter, over the weeks we got to know each other reasonably well, and it turns out he was a musician who was part of a group. He bought me a CD in, and I liked it that much, I ended up giving him a performance spot at a show I used to help to produce up in Dudley at the Lamp Tavern, and they were sensational when they played live. The name of the band is Babel. This is a track taken from the CD, but the CD, I'm afraid, is long since lost. I haven't got a clue what the name of this track is, but anyway, this is Babel. Congolese music, all the way from Netherton.
Oh, right. Oh, quite carried away there, dancing away. <laughs> yeah, as if. Right, that was my bell. What a fantastic, absolutely fabulous. See, Black Country podcasting, it isn't just about people that are born and bred in the Black Country. As long as you live here, that's good enough for me. Well, that's about it for show two. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with me, loz at lozipkiss.com, double Z and double S. I'd love to hear from you. And you can go and have a look at the basic website at www.blackcountryrecording.com. You can find me on iTunes now and you can subscribe to the show from there so that when a new show comes along, you'll automatically become notified. That might be a good way to do it. So all that's left for me to say is, keep out the house road, do a lot of it. 